Welcome to the Entrepreneur's MBA, bringing you lessons from real-life entrepreneurs they don't teach in business school. Here's your host, business coach and marketing strategist, Adam Kipnis. Welcome to today's episode of the Entrepreneur's MBA. I'm your host, Adam Kipnis. At the Entrepreneur's MBA, we talk about business lessons that just can't be learned in school. There are things that happen in life and in business that we can't always prepare for, but if we learn from people who have been through them, we can have our eyes open when they, when they come up in our lives. In my world, I focus on helping clients get more revenue, get new clients, build more revenue and profit. Uh, definitely download my book at freebookfromadam.com. There are eight strategies that you can implement today to drive more revenue without spending money on marketing or advertising. And so that helps on the revenue side, but there's so much more to building a business. And I'm so excited to have Ron Carucci from Navalent here to talk about the, the business building side of it. He is an expert in leadership, in business strategy, business structure, and taking a startup to success. He's got eight books. He's been in the Harvard, Harvard Business Review. He's got TEDx presentations. Ron, thanks so much for joining today. I really appreciate it. Adam, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Uh, I want to start a little bit with where, where you started in, in, in this current business, but, all, but also what's leading up to it. You had told me that you didn't have this, I'm going to start a business and make it big entrepreneurial dream. While it may have been in there somewhere, it wasn't why you started the business. Can you tell us a little bit about how it got going in the first place? Sure. So um, a couple of close friends of mine and I were working at a very large consulting firm in New York City. Um, and when that firm uh, it was a, actually it was a mid-sized firm. It got sold to a much larger firm. And you know, if anybody's ever been part of an acquisition, you know that that process can be a little bit messy. And once we were part of this larger firm as partners in that firm, you know, the game changed. We love our craft. We love you know organizational work as a passion for us. Um, and once you became part of leading a larger firm you know, your, your focus needed to shift. It was more about feeding the, feeding the dinosaur, about feeding the revenue machine and keeping the growth uh, going globally, uh, and less about the craft and less about the science of what we did. And that, became, that quickly became not fun. And I think over uh, the course of a couple of years after the post the deal, we thought, gosh, we still can have our dream. We still can do what we love to do. We can still serve clients the way we want to serve them. We don't have to do it here. And so we set off on our own to start. Um, so we no longer needed to do it at that firm. We could do it on our own. So we set off to um, uh, begin uh, the work together on our firm. I don't think we set off to say, let's go build our own firm. We simply thought, let's go do this work we love to do and keep it the main focus of our lives and, and enjoy working together, enjoy people we care about, and enjoy caring for our clients and getting better at what we do. I think that's as really much of an ambition as we had when we began. As it turns out, 14 years later, we've now grown a, a, a wonderful boutique firm um, and have people who share our passion and love for serving clients and share our passion for each other. It's interesting that you say that 
you focused on the client, you focused on the work that you were doing, and, and the business grew. I, I know a lot of business owners, entrepreneurs, that the business is, is the, the focus. And, and that's not to say they're not thinking about their clients, but they almost can't help um, to think about the business and, and to build a quote-unquote business. Where, how did you not? Right? How did well, that not creep Well, you know, it's an, it's an interesting question, Adam. I think so many entrepreneurs that I work with and that I coach struggle with the difference between working in the business and working on the business. Um, and there is a, a, there's a tightrope there that you have to, to walk. I think over the years, one of our downfalls has been that we didn't spend as enough time working on the business because the three of us as owners spend so much time working in it and doing a lot of the selling work and developing our junior partners and our senior consultants and others in the firm. And so <clears throat> if I would say that I give us one place of a demerit, it has been that we haven't built sufficient mechanisms to sustain scaling as a business. We, we never had aspirations to grow a very large, you know, $50 million firm. That was never our, our goal. We're much more of a lifestyle firm where we care about our work. We care about our families. Our financial goals are set around everybody's individual income needs. You know, we're not responsible to advisory boards or shareholders. So we have the luxury of living our lives as part of our firm because our work is so much a part of who we are. Um, and, uh, you know, the, th the thing I would caution against so many entrepreneurs who, I, who hear the advice, just do what you're passionate about and the money will follow, um, I think that is such bullcrap advice, um, and it's not true. Um, you ha you, passion is a great thing to have. You should love what you do, but if you're not good at it, <laughs> you shouldn't assume you're going to get paid for it. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, it's a, it's a cautionary tale. We were very fortunate to be good at what we did. You know, we, we worked in the, in, the, in the preeminent firm of our field. We had been trained around the best practitioners there were. So we, and we entered the marketplace already with a reputation and already <clears throat> having a skill set that was distinctive among our peers. And so, you know, it's one thing to love and be passionate about what you do and let the money follow, but you need to be really, really good at what you do. Because these days, it's unlikely, unless you develop some very sophisticated, you know, technology that's cutting edge, it's unlikely that there's not somebody else up the street also offering what you offer. And so if you can't be competitively distinct enough to, to invite the clients you want to choose you over others, then it's unlikely that the money's going to follow. And, and that's and, and there's a, a saying that that different is better than better, um, which is very interesting. But what what you're saying is sort of an, an a, a next level of that is you have to be good, and then find a way to be different than your competitors. Well, I think you have to be both. I don't I don't know in this day and age the, the barriers to entry to most businesses to most. Um, startups to most franchisees um, are very difficult. And, you know, a franchise model, at least you, you borrow someone else's brand for a while, but if you're starting up, you know, your own whatever it is um, from scratch, um, it's, a, it's a crowded, cluttered marketplace out there. And the digital, the digital space to, to attract clients, which is the most economical way to do it, is, is so noisy and so cluttered. And so standing out from among the crowd, no matter what it is you're doing, uh, can be a difficult thing to do. And you know, we've all, we all unfortunately have been all conditioned to look at uh, social media and think, oh my gosh, we can all be overnight sensations. Look at these people on YouTube and Instagram. They're making hundreds of thousands of dollars an hour just because they look pretty and walk up and down the street and talk about products. Um, well, 
the truth of the matter is it takes about 10 years to be an overnight sensation. And, um, you know, it, it, it takes a lot more grit than so many entrepreneurs want to believe. We are so conditioned to want instant success and believe that it's possible um, that most entrepreneurs lose their steam or they get depressed or they get, they get frustrated or they give up. When it, the, 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 moment, the moment real tenacity and real perseverance are required. And, and that's true um, in careers. That's true in, in business. Obviously, that, that's true just, just in life is that, is that tenacity to overcome um, roadblocks, hurdles, and, and things that come up in life. Um, when, when you're working with, whether it's executives or business owners, what are, what are some tenants that, that you help them with in order to continue to see that path and to overcome? You know, there's a, a couple of things. We, I see many entrepreneurs or business, people starting businesses fall into the same trap of. And the first one is that question of identity, that question of who are you to the marketplace? Who are you as opposed to those um, uh, that your prospective clients might choose? And so often, they, they, the, when I ask, well, tell me your strategy. I get all kinds of counterfeits. I get a mission statement or I get a vision statement or I get the business plan they handed to the Series B funders or the venture capital fund or I get the product quota for the year or I get Costco called, that's the order, that's the strategy. Um, I get some uh, forgery of real identity and I push and I say, that's all very interesting, but tell me who you are. Tell me why you're better at what you do than anybody else. Uh, what you're at parity on, and what is, it, what is the reason you want the right clients to choose you. But so often, you know, when you have lights to keep on and mouths to feed and payrolls to make, you chase any, any dollar you can get. And so you become so many things to so many people, you, you, don't, you aren't really that distinct, um, especially if you're entering a field or in a, in a business or an industry that's fairly commoditized or fairly uh, wide-reaching. Um, and so many entrepreneurs convince themselves in their heads that, oh, but I'm better than anybody else. And I say, well, you and you may well be, but so all your competitors say the same thing about themselves. So why would people believe you? And I think the work to, to create competitive distinction, to create a swim lane in which you have earned your right to win and compete, and to stay that course, and, to, and ultimately the, the hardest thing for entrepreneurs is to say no, to say no to, the, to the, the sexy, shiny objects du jour that you feel like you could chase in the service of committing a narrowed focus and a narrowed set of resources to the thing you want to be good at long term. And, and once you do that, then you can just make decisions about organization and leadership and investments. But so often, entrepreneurs are trying to figure out what marketing investments to make and who to hire and um, where to locate their work. And they're just chasing these decisions with no sense of what basis to make them on. And so they're, you, know, you, you see startups all the time, we hired 50 people this month, it's crazy. And I'm like, yeah, and you're driving people crazy too. They're not happy. They're, you, you think they're thriving on this energy, but they're exhausted. And so the, the work to scale and grow a business, which are different things, um, most entrepreneurs confuse. They, they grow, but they don't scale. And so often when I enter a story, you know, it's an entrepreneur who you know, now has a $10 million company. And it's a classic um, $10 million company trapped in the body of a $3 million organization. Um, it's like the teenage boy wearing his dad's suit. You know, he's just, they haven't grown into themselves yet. And you can hear the seams ripping. 
And so the discipline to learn to scale um, and add revenue faster than you add cost um, takes a level of precision and thoughtfulness that so many entrepreneurs didn't go into their businesses knowing they needed. Very interesting that that ten million dollar company in a, in a, a, a three million dollar business, um, or I, I like the way you put it, um, the the young boy wearing the the father's suit. Um, I know, and I've worked with companies like that that that's the time that they rewrite their mission statement and they talk about their core values and they try and put this new face on what they're doing. How do you help businesses and what guidance can you give to businesses that are struggling like that? Rather than trying to put words on top of what you're doing, how do you get them to, to refocus on the core and the soul of what they do for that better business rather than words to try and make a better business. That's such a great question, uh, Adam. And you know what? I love, I love the, 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 um, your example of the counterfeit. Go back to the mission statement and the values. So the, 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 the dangerous partial good instinct there is that there is a, there is a, there is an impulse to return to basics. Um, that's the good part. It's the wrong basics though, right? You, you can't, you can't lipstick the pig and have it look pretty. You have to go back and do the, the work of strategy. You have to go back and really lay out your fundamental competitive basis. What are the three or four capabilities that you're going to invest in that if you put a dollar in, five dollars comes in the door? You have the market data proof that you have a right to win, that somebody wants what you believe you're offering. So, so many times, I'm sure you've seen this a lot of times too, Adam, <clears throat> the thing the entrepreneur is selling is not the thing that the people are buying. Um, you know, you're all enamored right. and think all you're that, what you've got is all that in a bag of chips, but the thing they're buying is a solution to a problem you didn't even know you were solving. Um, and so you've got to start from the outside in. And to your point, they get so, the center of gravity shifts so far inside the company and then they become navel gazers. They lose sight of the people they came to serve. And you've got to really shift your focus to outside the organization and start with the basics of what are the three or four things that are going to set us apart and what are the capabilities we have to invest in to deliver on that promise and, and say no to everything else. It, means, it may mean firing clients. It may mean narrowing your focus for a season and building the fundamental scalability. Um, you know, people here in entrepreneurial environments hear the word standardization and they freak out. They think, oh, you're going to constrain my creativity. I can't, I have to have maneuvering room and all these excuses. Well, the reality is standardization is not an impediment to innovation. Standardization is a liberator of innovation. Disciplining yourself to, to create repeatability is where your scalability is. And that's what free up, should free up your, your capacity to innovate in the areas you're good at. But so often you see people reinventing the wheel. This, you, know, they, you, you walk into the shipping department where they ship out products and everybody's packaging things different ways across the room, right? Just little things like that even tell you that the disciplines needed to be in place to scale are not there. So you've got to go back to basics. You've got to do the work of strategy um, before you can do the work of organization. The second thing you've got to do then is look at your work. Not all work is created equal. We try to create these environments where everybody feels good and everybody is treated like equals and all the people who didn't want to work for big corporate America came here because they wanted to give their lives to a startup and blah, blah, blah. But the reality is not all work is created equal and you can't treat it that way. There is some work that's competitive. There's work that is truly the most distinctive work you do that sets you apart, that delivers on that competitive promise. That should be getting the most, the most money and the most talent. 
there's work that's competitive enabling that supports that work, and then probably 50 or 60% of what you do is necessary work. It keeps the lights on. You don't have to be better at it than anybody else. You just have to do, do it and keep out of jail. Well, the minute you mix the necessary work with the competitive work, the competitive work is diluted. Right? The urgency of, of keeping the lights on takes over the long-term work of staying competitively distinct and being truly um, uh, world-class at something. And so you've got to organize your work in a way that protects and separates competitive work from competitive enabling work from necessary work. But you can't do that until you know what the competitive basis is. And that will tell you where to invest. That will tell you where to spend your money. That will tell you what kind of talent to hire and where and for what. And that will begin to help you build the last part of the work, which is leadership. What kind of leaders do you need to lead that work? So often the entrepreneur themselves is leading at four different levels. How many times have you walked in and seen the the quote-unquote CEO is also the CMO, the CHRO, the COO, the CFO? They're doing all the jobs, um, and all roads lead to them. And so you've not distributed decision-making. You've not empowered others to make choices outside of you. Um, And most dangerously, the identity of your organization is way too linked to your own your own identity, um, and you are the face of the organization in a, in a very um, incestuous way, and that, that's one of the biggest deaths of scalability. When you decide that you have to make yourself indispensable, um, you begin to suffocate your own business, and we've, we've all seen entrepreneurs do it unwittingly. So get strategy, organize the work correctly, and build in leadership capability beneath you. Those are the three things that we get the entrepreneurs to begin the hard work of doing so that they can, that they're, they're, the babies they created so so passionately can actually grow up. Mm-hmm. Yes. And for for the listeners, the whether you're a, a sole practitioner doing your own thing or whether you're a 10 or $20 million company, those three things are still there. Even if you're a, a, a sole proprietor, a solopreneur, um, you know, the, there really is no thing, such thing as a solopreneur because you've got things going on that, and you have people that are supporting you, whether it's your technology vendor or whether it's the, the internet service that's coming into your building. Without internet, you might not have a, have a company anymore. And you still need to understand the competitive advantage and, and have those people on your team, those vendors working with you. And you still need to be a leader of those different vendors and the people you're working with. So when you're working with a big company or a small company, how do you help them see all of the, the disparate parts of their organization, big or small, um, without getting overwhelmed? Well, it's a great question, uh, Adam. We st- all of our work starts with a, a really forensic diagnostic work. It's, you know, it's, we, it's our MRI. So we start with, you know, a a deep look under the hood to understand what's going on. And we look at the organization systemically. So we look at strategy, leadership, governance, process, culture, uh, talent, uh, and we organize our our MRI systemically. So we can look at and we teach people that your organization and your org chart are different things, right? don't, Don't show me an org chart that tells me nothing about who you are. It just tells me who reports to who. But we look at a holistic picture of... Who you say you are, an organization is nothing more than an embodiment of a strategy, right? You, know, you should organize and configure your assets um, for the purposes of delivering a strategy. If you don't know what your strategy is, then, you're probably con- then you can almost assume everything's configured poorly uh, or suboptimally. So we, our diagnostic does look at things holistically. And 
once that data is revealed and once we process what the, um, the, the MRI is telling us, we start with the first question of identity and strategy. Are, have you articulated and embodied um, a viable competitive um, identity? Um, does the world around you understand you that way? Uh, and if not, what's the disconnect? And once we can answer that confidently, then the question becomes, okay, well, have you configured the organization in a way that enables it to execute that strategy? Do you have the talent, the processes, the governance structures, the culture, um, the, the, the organizational um, reward systems in place that all mutually reinforce and consistently work together congruently to deliver that strategy. And if not, where it's broken, we say, go fix it. Now, to your point about being overwhelmed, the, the, the data may reveal far more, far more challenges or opportunities than you can you know, um, physically absorb or financially invest in, so we have to prioritize, right? So it may say, okay, over the coming three to five years, here's your order of battle, here's where you are to start. So you, you lay out a, a transformational plan. Um, you know, people wanna, always wanna say, well, can I just do this in a couple weeks? <laughs> And my answer is always, well, it took you five years to screw it up, so you shouldn't assume that you're going to be able to fix it in five minutes. Um, you've got to be willing to, unless someone infuses you with a lot of capital out of nowhere, which is usually unlikely, you're going to have to stay the course and, and you know, regroup, redirect, um, build for the long term over a period of usually you know, several years, not several months. And, and then continue to utilize that, those new learnings in, in the greater growth of the business without getting sidetracked in um, the next shiny penny, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> so to, to think about that, I want to use you as a, a bit of a metaphor for the other, uh, for businesses out there. So you've, you've got your business, you've got your clients. Um, you've got the people that you're taking care of, but you're also obviously part of your, your organization and your company to make sure it's running well. You've got, you've written eight books. You, uh, featured in Forbes, Harvard Business Review. You've given TEDx talks. Those are a lot of things that ultimately help build your, the brand of the business and, and your brand, but, but they're things that can take your eye off of your clients and off of your business. So, how did you prioritize these different avenues that you put yourself in um, without doing it at the expense of the business? Mm, that's a question. And it was uh, that's a, a fabulous question, Adam, and it wasn't easy. Um, it's only been the last three or four years that I've, a lot of that work came to be. The, uh, the books were, have been, happened over the last you know, 15 years. But uh, about three and a half years ago, I hired a coach for me. I, you know, I was... I, I felt like I, I was sputtering. Like I was not able to attract the kinds of clients I wanted at the quality level I wanted them at. And I thought I, I thought I was doing all that I was supposed to be doing to set myself apart, to demonstrate my the thought leadership of my firm. Um, and our, my firm was, you know, getting having to get far more serious about demand creation and digital marketing and figuring out what what digital swim lanes it wanted to, it to swim in because we had so much of our business had come from referrals. Um, or repeat clients that would move to other organizations. And so, you know, we knew that wasn't sustainable, but it took us a long time to get, finally get the wake-up call that we had to build our own go-to-market machinery and our own demand creation machinery. But that was going slow, and I felt like I, I needed to go a little faster, so I went and hired a coach for myself, um, which was one of the best decisions I ever made. Um, and lo and behold, 
um, not only did I not know what to do, the things that I thought I was doing that were correct weren't even in the right galaxy. Um, and so when my coach came back with her diagnostic work, you know, I'm like, first I'm like, wow, this is what it's like to be on the other side of me. <laughs> like I'm taking my own medicine here. Um, and that felt terrifying, but good. Um, but I learned that I was doing none of the activities I needed to do to, to truly set myself apart and let people know, you know, what I could offer them or how I could help them solve important problems. And so about three years ago, we set course, I, with a lot of help from my coach, to do the necessary work, um, which I was, you know, I, for me, the frustration was I felt like I was really behind. I was at a point in my career where I thought, why should I have to do this now? But no point in asking that. The answer is you do, right? So I needed to get over myself pretty quickly and get on with it. And so for the last three years, has been, you know, the, all the intense activities you're seeing, the you know, writing a hundred or so articles for Forbes and HBR, you know, doing over 160 podcasts like this one, um, two TEDx talks, a Google Authors talk, um, an HBR whiteboard session. You know, all of that, that body of work has all come just in the last three plus years. Um, so it, it was very much like a second job um, because I still had to, you know, lead my client engagements, sell more work for the firm, feed the firm, and deliver my clients to pay my own bills because you know, I don't get paid for any of this stuff. But, but it is intended to, do, to make me more findable to the, right, the kinds of clients I want to serve. Um, had I been doing it over the last seven or eight years, it might, have, it might be different for us now. But so for me, it felt like a lot of catch-up. Um, it's a lot of work. You know, for entrepreneurs, I can't stress enough, you've got to build your go-to-market demand creation work from the build it into your organization from the very beginning, create a culture. You know, I mean, we, none of us want the sort of the um, dog eat dog, you know, um, kinds of eat what you kill hunting cultures that make it unpleasant to work there, right? So we don't want that. But the other extreme is to have a very laissez-faire culture of people who just assume, you know, someone's going to shake a tree and money's going to come in. That's not good either. You have to find the balance that works for whatever business you're in to attract the clients you need to attract and have a steady pipeline of prospects that you can choose from and hopefully get to the place where you're getting to choose who you want to work with. Um, you know, none of us, no startup business has enough um, business that it, you know, it, it can keep, you, you can keep up with the growth if, you, if you're attracting the right demand, right? So at some point, you, when you earn your right to be choiceful about that, when you earn your right to be selective, that's when you're really in the, in the driver's seat. Right, and, and you, you just mentioned three really important things that, um, that we hear and some of us may know, but, but we don't always do. One is, is when you decided you needed to grow the business and that you wanted to step out of your comfort zone and, and um, get more exposure, you, you had a strategy around it. You didn't write a book and, and hope that book would sell itself. You, you wrote those books and you did these talks with a purpose of how you would utilize them. So for those out there, don't just write a book and, and think it's going to bring you clients. Have a strategy of how you're going to use that book. And then two, you hired a, a coach, and that coach you probably hired for an explicit purpose, but they took you in a different direction because you had blind spots. And then once you had the platform and, and your coach had you fixing those blind spots, you were able to use those as leadership techniques for your the rest of your firm to say, hey, here's, here's a way to do it. And now you're giving back to, to people like, like the audience listening 
um, on how you did it. So did all those three things, were those all part of the initial strategy? Or <laughs> yeah, I, I, did the Adam, strategy I would say you, 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 are, you are overly <laughs> generous to me in two, in two of the three. <laughs> Way overly generous to me in two of the three. I would say the middle one, hiring the coach, was the one I was most intentional about. But I will tell you that most of the books, um, the, 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 even the bestseller one, the Rise of the Power one, was far more of what you said not to do than it was. It was far more of the if you write it, they will come belief. <clears throat> um, had I had a better strategy for it, I mean, the, the research got the recognition afterwards in HBR. The growth of the book came much much after the book, you know, a year or two after. I went into that book clueless as to the, the I, I, I had golden research. I had incredible, you know, platinum standard findings in this data, and I had no idea. Um, and when, when, it, when it blew up virally, we were flat-footed. We had no idea what to do. And for me, that was one of those I'm never going to get here again moments. Um, the last one about in terms of the firm, uh, again, you're, you're overly kind. I, I would say the firm is now is beginning to get it. I think we're starting to learn. We're investing in the right marketing dollars and the right we have out. We, we tried to do it ourselves and bootstrap it. That didn't work. We have outsiders now who are experts. Um, our, we, you know, certainly over the last three years, we launched the magazine three years ago. We had the ebook. So we have some basis of a platform. Um, and now, yes, my, my platform is enabling the firms to, to grow its platform, and now we're getting more intentional about that. But I would, but I would hardly say um, it's been a natural act to get there. <laughs> <laughs> well, well it, it, it sounds natural. And, and the good thing about, about a, a forum like this is even though you know, it takes 10 years to be an overnight success, um, the benefit now is everyone else can learn from um, – what you did and be more intentional about their book and, and, and hire a coach and, and learn from them and, and know how to gain more exposure. Um, and you've got your magazine and your ebook. Can you um, give the, the audience how to, how to get those so they can learn from you because you've got uh, great information that you provide in those. Yeah, so come, come visit us and keep the conversation going at Navalent, N-A-V-A-L-E-N-T.com. If you come to Navalent.com slash transformation, um, you'll find our free ebook on leading transformation. So on a lot of what we talked about in this episode on our, our playbook and how we go about doing that. Um, you'll also find our Navalin Quarterly, a great magazine that has all kinds of uh, tips and techniques and, and approaches for leadership and teams and culture and strategy. So, and, and a you know, great repository of blogs. We've got great video assets. So come hang out at the website, and there's lots of great stuff for you there. I'm also at Twitter at, at Ron Carucci, and I'm also on LinkedIn. So we'd love to keep the conversation going. That's awesome. So navalent.com slash transformation and just navalent.com for, for the information that he provides. Ron, thank you for your thoughts, for the information, for the things to think about, for the, the, the small and growing business and, and the ongoing business that, that wants to take you to the next level. Uh, great information. Really appreciate you taking the time today. Adam, the pleasure is mine. Thanks so much for having me. You got it. Look forward to the next one. And everyone, thank you for being here on the Entrepreneur's MBA. Talk to you next time. You've been listening to the Entrepreneur's MBA. Download Adam's free book, How to Make More Money in Your Business, at www.freebookfromadam.com. 
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.